Well, thanks everybody. Uh, it's great to be with you. Last time I was in Austin, I spoke at another church in town that did not have air conditioning, and uh, I looked at the thermometer in the rental car, and it was 117 degrees. So I'm just really thankful to have Freon, and uh, really thankful to um, get to be with uh, the people who are loved by somebody that I love. Um, you know, Nick didn't tell you that I tried to recruit him. When he was looking at this role, I was trying to recruit him to come join our team in Nashville, and so he chose you over us, and uh, no hard feelings, but uh, it really is great to be with you, uh, such a kindredness and solidarity with what God's doing in your midst. Um, last time I was here guest speaking, I also, uh, I also made the mistake of 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 daring to say that I'm also from a city of music, and uh, there's this whole room full of people, and you could heard a pin drop, like, they're just looking at me like, yeah, right, you, like you have music in Nashville. No, we really do. It's good music that comes out of Nashville, too, but um, in any event, today, uh, I do want to uh, talk about this um, uh, I guess, biblical uh, vision that, ha- that my headspace has been occupied with a lot lately. And, um, you know, the, the words, the, the terminology we're using for it is an irresistible faith. But basically what it means uh, is to return to the place that um, the early church experienced and enjoyed. And that was that... Um, that they were known as amazing neighbors. Um, now, let, let me just preface this by saying that there are no more amazing neighbors in the world than Christian people. The problem is that the story is not being told well by us or by anyone else. Here is a fact. Every single Ivy League university except for one was founded by Christian lay people and ministers. Wherever there is care uh, happening and orphanages opening, you better believe that Christians are on the front lines planning, opening their pockets, organizing, and so on. Wherever there's been abolition from any kind of slave trade, whether you're talking about the African slave trade in England or whether you're talking about the, uh, the African slave trade in the continental United States, Christians were the ones who led that effort. Christians are the ones that are leading the effort globally now to fight against sex trafficking of young girls. Christians are the ones on the front line uh, in, in advocating and for and pursuing racial reconciliation and justice. Christians are on the front line of, of, of leading addiction recovery efforts, of, of taking in and, and caring for and drawing out, not giving dignity to, but drawing out the dignity that's already there for people who have disabilities and special needs. Christians invented the hospital, you guys. So it's not that Christians are bad neighbors. It's that the story is not being told honestly by the world around us, and it's not being told well by us. You know, one of the moral imperatives that Jesus gave to us was let your light shine before men. Be like a city on a hill. Be extroverted. Be as visible as you possibly can. Do not be shy about the things that you're doing in the world in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, Acts chapter 1, 
uh, Luke writes that, 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 that he wants to tell us, this is, by the way, after Jesus has died, after Jesus has risen from the dead, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father and sent the Holy Spirit after Jesus has left the scene physically. Luke says, now I'm going to tell you everything that Jesus continued to do. Jesus continued to do. And then he talks about the church. We are called by God to be the embodiment of Jesus Christ. The Bible says the aroma of Christ. We're his ambassadors to the world. And the outcome of that we see described in chapter 2 of the book of Acts where Luke writes that the Christians' quality of life and their contributions that they were making to their communities, they were such life-giving neighbors that they were enjoying the favor of all the people. That includes people who thought their beliefs were weird, which was most people in Rome. I mean, if you think about it, we believe some pretty weird stuff, you guys. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that he rose from the dead after, he was, after his body was a corpse for several days, that he flew into heaven, and then he's going to fly back and come get us someday. It all sounds like a fairy tale, really, but... It's actually, we believe, that it's a fairy tale that's true, and, and it's been solidified in time-space history with the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and over 500 eyewitnesses who were willing, and we have record of this. It, it's verifiable, ver- verifiably historic. Look, if Jesus didn't come up from the dead, then George Washington wasn't the president of the United States, if you're going to apply the same you know, sort of logic. I mean, we have one of the founders of Harvard Law School, Simon Greenleaf, who law professors and, 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 and legal professionals still would say he wrote the book on legal evidences. He would mock Christianity and especially what he called the myth of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in his classes at Harvard Law School. And some of his students who were Christians said, okay, if anybody can prove that, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there's anybody in the history of the world that can prove that, it is you, sir, so try to do it. And he said, well, I will. I will put this thing to rest. And, and he sought, you know, based on the stuff that, that you know, the, 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 that he would do to prove a case or disprove a case in the, a court of law, he sought to do the same thing with the resurrection, to disprove it once and for all, to, to, to identify it for what he was sure it was, a hoax, a myth, and he became a Christian in the process. Okay, so, so let's just get that straight. <laughs> this is Historically verifiable, it really, really is. There's some incredibly smart people from Oxford and, 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 and Harvard and, and so on, right, uh, that believe this stuff. Oxford was founded by Christians, Harvard, etc. So Christians are doing some magnificent stuff. It's smart, but it's got to be beautiful too, you guys. It has to be beautiful. Because Jesus is beautiful. And so I want to talk about that this morning. I, I want to talk about what it means to uh, become the embodiment of what Madeline Langle wrote in uh, Walking on Water, her reflections on faith and art, when she said, and she's writing as a Christian in, in this particular statement, she says, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting them or loudly telling them how right we are and how wrong they are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they can't help but ask what the source of, uh, source of that light is. And so I want to talk about that today. 
Um, and as I do, I want to start by uh, reading for us the first seven verses of the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. And it says this, that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes, these are the religious professionals, they grumbled, saying, this man welcomes sinners, receives sinners, and eats with them. And so Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So what I want to um, camp out on from this text, from this teaching straight from the man himself, is two things. He comes into the world, and, and this is also how we as the church of Jesus Christ are called to go into the world, with a love that nobody expects as a God who loves us first, okay? So a love that nobody expects. C.S. Lewis, again, another Oxford guy, Oxford historian C.S. Lewis, uh, once wrote that Christianity has to be true. And he's a former atheist, Oxford scholar, former atheist, says, come to the conclusion that Christianity has to be true because no human being would have ever invented it. Religion says you, you've got to perform to a certain level in order to get the blessing. Christianity says you get the blessing from the very beginning. And, 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 and you live your life out of that instead of toward the blessing. You live your life out of a blessing that's already been given to you freely by God through His grace, through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that, all that, that means. Here's what it means to be a Christian. The starting point for being a Christian is to understand that your well done, the, the, the pat on the back, that the victory trophy is given to you not at the end of your journey after you've won the race, but at the beginning of your journey before you've even started the race. That's the difference between Christianity and every other kind of religion that's ever existed. And that's why C.S. Lewis says it has to be true because nobody would have thought of it except the creator himself. A love we don't expect. The religious people are ones who are most surprised and most troubled by Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners, it says, are all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, the religious professionals, grumbled. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Jesus is guilty by association. He never did anything to incur actual guilt, but he was constantly held guilty by association. If we go back to the seventh chapter of the same gospel, of Luke's gospel, we see that people are saying, look at Jesus, he's a, he's a glutton, and he's a drunk, and he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And now, anybody who knows anything about the actual life of Jesus and the actual way that Jesus conducted his life, these first two charges, these are glutton and a drunk, absolutely false. Absolutely false. The third charge, he's a friend of sinners, absolutely true. And I hope that, 
I hope that that feels like good news to you instead of offensive. Because let me tell you something. You want to align with the prostitutes, not with the religious professionals on this stuff. This is the crazy thing. We think that the prostitutes and the crooks are going to be the ones who get theirs in the end. It's actually reversed. The people who are going to be most terrified on the judgment day are the ones who did all the judging in their lifetime. And the ones who are going to be surprised and liberated and set free and told, welcome, welcome home, are the ones who are accustomed to experiencing the shame and the judgment and the finger pointing from religious professionals and people who admire the religious professionals that you could call the grumpy saints. So the next scene in Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee named Simon is holding a dinner party or hosting a dinner party. Jesus is one of the invited guests. They invited Jesus not because they liked him or wanted to get to know them. They, 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 they invited Jesus because they, they, they had all these gotcha questions that they wanted to ask him so that they could discredit him because they felt threatened by his growing influence in the community that they wanted to continue to be the boss of. And so, to their surprise and unexpected, in comes after Jesus a prostitute. She's described as a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. And she proceeds, as a prostitute, to pull out the three primary tools of her trade, her lips, her perfume, and her hair, and express public affection toward Jesus with those three tools of her trait. She kisses his feet, she puts perfume on his feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. They scold her, he praises her. They scold her, he praises her. This is what true biblical faith, you call it irresistible faith, you can call it whatever you want to call it. This is what Christianity is. And I, I, hope, I, I, hope, I hope that some of you here, I hope that half of you don't really even know why you're here this morning. I hope that half of you are just here because somebody invited you and you didn't want to let them down or disappoint them, so you, you're, you're here. I hope that by the time you leave here, your understanding of who Jesus Christ is is the opposite of what you may have walked in here thinking about Christ and Christianity, because it is. It is. Jesus has not set up shop in Washington, D.C., you guys. So whatever this narrative is that, you know, Christians in Washington, D.C., they're kind of one and the same. Wrong. It's not true. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not. And so anyone who tries to conflate their republicanism with Christianity or their democratism, their, their right-leaning or their left-leaning politics with Christianity and act as if those two are the same thing, you're wrong. 
It's not to say that government is a bad thing. Government is God's invention. Politics is our invention. Government is God's invention. It's a good thing. It has its place. But Jesus' kingdom is of another place and of another way. His kingdom is not about the acquisition and assertion of power. It's about the laying aside of power and the use of power in order to lift up the weak and to advocate for the underdog. That's who Jesus Christ is. That's what a real king is. A real king is somebody that you so admire and so respect and so want to follow because they never, ever, ever, ever act like a king. That's Jesus Christ. That's churches like the well. That's what the well wants to be in Austin, Texas. When you are on the narrow path of Jesus, you are going to be a very, very broad, embracing kind of person. The more conservative you are about the things that the Bible says, like I believe every single word in there, I don't understand it all, but I, I believe it's true because I believe it's from God. The more conservative you are in your beliefs about the Bible, the more liberal you're going to be in the way that you love other human beings, including those who do not believe as you do, especially those who do not believe as you do. This is another thing that makes Christianity from another world that only God could have invented, that no human being could have invented it. It's actually a system where you're supposed to have really, really deep, dogged convictions that you would be willing to die for. You would rather die than walk away from, from the words that have proceeded out of the mouth of God. And not in spite of that deep, fierce, bold conviction, but precisely because of it. You are one of the best, you are among the best lovers in the whole world of people who will never come around to what you believe. What would it look like? What would it look like for Christians to become publicly known as the people who love the LGBT community better than the LGBTQ community loves itself? What would it look like? You know, in the first century, you had a, an emperor, Julian, who whose life mission was to exterminate Christians because of their elevating influence in Rome. He was like Hitler was to the Jews in Germany, except toward Christians. And there was nothing that Julian could do to stop Christianity from growing. Like the ancient church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is actually the seed of the church. You kill one of them, ten more start to come up out of the ground. By the way, this whole narrative that the church is declining, come on. That is such a white American thing to say. It's such a white suburban American thing to say that the Christian church is in decline. Are there any other people in the world other than your white English-speaking, you know, coffee-sipping, <laughs> millennial kids? I mean, like, I, there are hundreds of them here. Even those kids are here today. Thousands of them are right down the street at Austin Stone as well. And at our church in Nashville and across the world. Right? So, so but, but look, even in America, the, the, the black church is growing. In America, the Asian church is growing like crazy more than it ever has. In China, where there's more persecution than there's ever been, it's growing more than it ever has. 
decline. Come on, 7 billion people in the world. Over 30% of them believe in Jesus Christ. Decline? I don't think so. We're not telling the story well. What can it look like locally? So, um, so I shared this story. It's, it's, every pastor has about, you know, maybe 15, 20 stories that they kind of go back to. Not just to tell, but to keep us in ministry. Because ministry is really hard. Like, you guys, you treat guest preachers really well. I hope you pre- teach, treat your own preachers ten times better than you've treated me. Their job is one of the hardest in the world. It's one of the hardest in the world. If you got some petty criticism about music or, you know, I wish you would have said this more and emphasized this more in your sermon, just stop. <laughs> Truly, like, stop. You know, pastors are the people where everybody in their organization can, can criticize them without consequence, okay? Because you're not charged a thing to be here. You're not charged a thing to be here. Everything is given to you free. So be careful <laughs> and lo- love your pastors well. You already do. I'm telling you what you, but when things get hard for your church three or four times, you know, remember what happened to Moses in the Old Testament. Like their, their beef was with God. But they were too cowardly to talk to God directly to his face. And so they blamed every resentment they had against God on the leaders. Don't do that. Okay? I don't know how in the world I got on this because this has nothing to do with my message. <laughs> Here's that. Yeah. We pastors, we, we, we have a responsibility to keep ourselves in ministry. And one of this is we go back to all these wonderful stories of what Jesus has done in the churches that we've been part of. So here's one. Here's one of my stories. There's a guy that I'll call Bill because that was his name. Uh, he comes unannounced into our church. He's got, he's got uh, needle streaks down both of his arms. He's tatted up, um, reeks of nicotine from 20 feet away, body odor, um, you know, like this white t-shirts that's, that's really more gray than white, um, you know, ripped up jeans, barefoot, comes in to our church unannounced, and um, I'm just thinking, wow, this is great. Lord, thank you. I don't know how, what this guy's story is, but I can't wait to hear it and, and be part of this guy's. I hope I get to be part of this guy's life. Um, and so while we're singing, this guy that I'll call the church guy comes up to me, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, pastor, you see that guy over there? I don't think I've ever seen him before, but He's a real distraction to my worship. He smells really bad. He's drinking coffee, just so cavalier in the presence of God. <laughs> you want me to do something about that? I said, no, I got this. I got this. And so I immediately looked for a guy in our church named Mark. Mark was uh, two years sober from an opioid addiction. And I walk up to Mark, and before I even said a word, he just looked at me, he's like, yeah, I got this. Uh, and so afterwards, you know, Mark makes a beeline toward Bill, and just says, hey, man, what's your name? What's your story? And that began a true friendship between those two guys, and it eventually led to, to Bill coming to know the Lord. 
But I thought about that statement from the church guy, a distraction to my worship. What does the book of James say we're supposed to do when somebody comes off the street wearing shabby clothes, haven't bathed in months, uh, you know, and just, just a complete mess and disaster? Give them the seat of honor. That's the first thing we're supposed to do because that's actually how Jesus says he's going to show up in our lives. Whatever you did for the least of these, that's what you did for me. Let me tell you, I watched Nick Brandt not give dignity to, but, but draw the dignity out that was, has always been there of, of a homeless guy last night. You remember his name? What's his name? Todd. Nick remembers Todd's name. Okay, because Nick knows, Nick discerns, I'm talking possibly to an angel right now. I'm interfacing possibly right now to Jesus in disguise right now. And you guys should have seen it. You should have seen just the, the, the dignity and the love and the other-centeredness and the eye contact and the, and the empathy that one of your pastors in the name of Jesus Christ demonstrated in a three-minute conversation worth so much more than this sermon right now. But the, the, the church guy's main criticism of Bill was he smelled, reeked of nicotine. Isn't self-control a fruit of the Spirit? Clearly he's addicted to nicotine. I'm like, dude, did you see the streaks on his arm? He's in recovery. I don't know what you call a transition from a heroin addiction to a nicotine addiction. I don't know what you call it, but I call it an upgrade. I call it progress. And I think Jesus does too. His wife was an even more out loud story that day. Her name was Anne. She brought their two sons. They're, they're about this tall. Can you imagine growing up being raised by two heroin addicts? They're both coming off of recovery. The way they showed up at our church was, was the people in the recovery program they were part of said, find some religion because statistics show that the more religion you have in your life, the more likely you, you are. The statistics increase for you recovering from, from addiction. Your chances of survival are much, much better if you get some religion. It can be any religion you want, and they showed up at our church. We were in a little cafeteria like this, early phases of the life of our church. And they show up. And so she shows up, the nursery, drops the kid off, goes into the service, joins Bill. Afterwards, she goes back to the nursery, and, and the, the, the woman who's sitting at the, the table, you know, the welcome table at the nursery says, oh, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but your boys have broken a bunch of the toys, and they pick some fights, uh, one with each other and then several with other kids. And it's, we just thought, you want to know, we're going to be fine, but we just thought you as their mother might want to know. And, and she did, she, she did what, what, what felt to me, I, I was there. Uh, the first thing that she did was, was she screamed a word. You know, she yelled, shoot, really loud, but replaced those two vowels with another vowel. And, and that's what she said in front of all these children, in front of all their parents, in front of some pastors. And so she did. I'm watching her, and I'm like, she knows what to do now. What you're supposed to do is hunch your shoulders, put your head down, shut your mouth, turn the other way, and do the walk of shame 
and never show up again, and on your way out the door, tell yourself what you've always known, I am a mistake. I can't even get church right, for goodness sake. I am a mistake. And so the woman who was at the welcome table, having the discerning spirit of Jesus in her, uh, asked one of our staff members, hey, did they sign that little thing we send around for visitors to give their contact information? And it just so happens that they did. And so the woman, his name was Marcella, writes a letter to Anne and said to her, thank you so much. I hope we can become friends because you taught me today a little something that is so easy for me to forget about what it means to approach Jesus. He doesn't want us to hide. He doesn't want us to clean up. Sometimes he invites us just to yell into his face. There's a guy named Job who did that. There's another guy who Jesus called a man after God's own heart who did that all the time to God when he was a refugee on the run, when he was, you know, when, 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 when his character was being assassinated, when his own son was trying to overthrow him, you know, when, when, when a threatened king was try, you know, had a bounty on his head. Thank you for once again to showing me what, what it means to be honest. If we cannot use those kinds of words in church, if we cannot verbalize exactly how we feel in the presence of the people of God, where in the hell can we do it? Where on earth can we do it? So here's something that happened in my heart on the way home. Oh, by the way, Ann came back the next week, and she, walked, she was the first one to show up to church, as you might imagine, after she got that note, and she's walking with a strut. No more walk of shame. All it takes is a little bit of grace. All it takes is a little bit of a love that we don't expect. All it takes is a little bit of Jesus with skin on. All it takes is a little bit of let, let's do what Jesus has asked us to continue to do in his name. Let us show people what Jesus is continuing to do by virtue of the, what we do for them. Okay, and so I drive home. By the way, Ann became the nursery director of our church two years later. <laughs> she was not a good one. Uh, And then a few, a few years later, her two boys became orphaned because both her and Bill died from an overdose. Um, and Jesus received them. They both went to sleep to this world high as a kite and woke up more sober and clean than they've ever been. Because you get the well done, good and faithful servant before you even start the journey with Jesus. It's fixed. It's set. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to take it away from you. There is therefore, the Apostle Paul says, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to know what Christianity is? If you're here, not really sure. You're just here because you didn't want to hurt a friend's feelings because they invited you. Or you're not sure why you're here. You heard the coffee was good. You're not sure why you're here. You really are genuinely inquisitive because the life that you thought was going to be awesome is not delivering in the way that you maybe had hoped it would. 
Maybe you're here because you feel alone. Maybe you're here because you feel isolated, misunderstood. If you're a four on the Enneagram like me, you're always walking around feeling misunderstood. <laughs> Just a chronic victim. And I, I hope that at the very least you will walk away from this place getting an accurate picture of who Jesus Christ is. Do not look to Donald Trump. Do not look to Barack Obama. Do not look to your daddy. To get the picture of Jesus. Look to Jesus himself for your picture of what Jesus looks like. He is the image of the invisible God. The exact representation of his being. So one more thing happened in my heart. I'm driving away uh, on that day when the, you know, the, the church guy wanted, wanted a license to go and shame Bill for the nicotine smell or whatever was on his mind. And I'm, I'm going home and I'm mad at God. And I'm like, I'm going to get honest with you. You want some advice, Lord? The problem with the church is church guys. Make them go away. And look, I'm a Presbyterian, not a charismatic. <laughs> but God spoke to me in that moment. It wasn't loud but I could feel it. Scott, be careful because you are starting to become the church guy right now because there's such a thing as a grace Pharisee. It's the person who feels like they have a license to become an unloving, judgy Pharisee toward unloving, judgy Pharisees. And then he brought to my mind the, the second half of this chapter, Luke 15, where we get this, the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. You know, this, this son says, give me my inheritance early. In other words, that's code, that's subtweet for, I wish you were dead, father. And then the father gives the inheritance. And he runs off, spends it on prostitutes, spends it on, you know, wild living, you know, hedonism, like all the way hedonism. And then he's out of money, and therefore all of a sudden he realizes he's out of friends because he can't throw parties anymore. And so they all, they've all moved on. They, who, they weren't really friends in the first place. If I have to buy them, right? And so he returns home, does the walk of shame, not away from home, but back home. Like maybe my dad will receive me back as a slave. And the father says, uh-uh. I'm just going to cut you off with that whole speech that you have prepared about coming back and, you know, being all shame, you know, shame-filled and feeling guilty and, you know, talking like you don't belong in the family anymore. Like, no, 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 no. Your speech, it's over. I'm going to throw a party for you. I'm going to invite the whole community. I'm going to show you what love is. I'm going to show you the love that's always been here for you. And then the father also has a son who's a church guy. He comes to the father and starts complaining. This son of yours, you see what he did? You see what he did? Now you throw a party for him. You never throw a party for me. I'm the good son. I've always kept your rules. Like that right there is a sure sign that we haven't come to know God yet. If we feel like that's what a relationship with him is, is keeping his rules. No, no, no. Here's the deal. His wish will become your command as a Christian because his command will eventually become your wish. Because 
of how deeply you discover, you come to discover you are loved. I mean, who, who in their right mind wants to turn away from somebody who loves them more and better than anybody else ever has or ever will? I mean, it's crazy, right? So think of the one person who irritates you the most in the world. Maybe it's one of your parents. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a fraternity brother, sorority sister. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's somebody that you're disagreeing with on Facebook. Stop it. Just don't. Um, Whoever it is. Maybe it's Nick. I mean, whoever it is. Take in these words from Anne Lamott. You can safely assume that you have created God in your own image, when God hates all the same people that you do. He's an equal opportunity lover. I love what uh, Rich Mullins once said, God has no taste. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. He's a God who loves us first. We'll never be able to love this way until we understand that and until we embody that together as communities. I love seeing these realities playing themselves out, even in the conversations I've had, just how much this church has meant to, to the people who are here navigating some very complicated things in their worlds and in their hearts. Keep doing that. You know, here's a sign that we have really experienced Jesus Christ. We have stopped separating the world between the good people and the bad people, as if that exists. It's one of the liberating, and this is going to sound really like counterintuitive, but one of the most liberating things for me, I've been a Christian for, gosh, almost 30 years now. One of the most liberating things about being a Christian for me is that I can admit my junk and I can own it. and I can be completely honest with it and I don't need to hide any of it. I'm in a safe place with Jesus Christ. He knows me better than I know myself. So in light of that, I'm free to stop separating the world between the good people and the bad people. That's what the church guy does. That's what religious moralism does. Good people are over here. The bad people are over here. We're these people. They're those people. It doesn't matter who you are. By the way, if you're like a you know, a, a super progressive person, super tolerant, super inclusive. Are you really? I appreciate the honesty of New York Times journalist Nicholas Kristof, who is a card-carrying liberal. He says, we're just as fundamentalist as Jerry Falwell. Because you know what? There's hardly a single conservative who teaches in the universities. You know why? We hate him. We hate him. We're just as mean. We have that same... Don't think that because you're liberal, you're tolerant. No, you're not. Truly. See, until you can love a homophobic person as much as you can love a gay person, Jesus has not gotten into you yet. But if you can glorious because people won't be able to figure out (laughs) where you're coming from and that's when you get a chance to say guess what I serve a king whose leadership leads me 
to rise above the culture of outrage that defines the world that we live in right now and to offer a gentle answer that turns away wrath. That's the effect of Jesus on my life. Here's another memory I had. You know, it's not just pity for the weak. It's, it's solidarity with the weak. It's an understanding that I am Anne. I am Bill. I am the junkie. Nick experienced this last night as he watched me eat. Like, your city, like my city, is amazing with food. Like I, We all have our addictions, you guys. Some of them are just more socially acceptable than others. I think the American addiction is addiction to partisan politics. It's so ugly, you guys. And we're all like, oh, it's so ugly, but we jump right in. See, because it's the other partisan extremes politics that we're so irritated by. We're not the least bit bothered by our own echo chamber. That's called hypocrisy. Okay? I got my own addictions. I'm a junkie with other more legal stuff, more acceptable stuff like food and self-righteousness. Okay, and so another memory I had was three years into my tenure. I've been at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville now for seven years. At the third year point, I'm like, okay, it's time for me to get honest with these people. And I got honest, and I, I, I shared a, a bit in one of my sermons about how part of my journey has been various seasons that have included anxiety and depression. I'm a depressive person. Like I said, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Um, <laughs> And so there's this guy who I'd always been intimidated by. I couldn't figure him out. He was always kind of keeping a distance from me. I'm like, what? You, you, guys, you have people in your life where you feel like, I, I just don't think they like me, and I can't quite put a finger on it, but they don't like me. So this was one of those guys, really highly successful business leader in Nashville. I just felt intimidated by the guy. Could tell by his body language that he disapproved of me for those, those three years. So he makes a beeline to me after that sermon. And I'm like, oh, no, he's coming up to tell me he's about to start a movement to push me out of the church because he just can't tolerate the thought of having a pastor who would get depressed or experience anxiety, I mean, et cetera. And, and he, he put his hands on my shoulders and he said, all right, let me tell you, you're a really gifted communicator, and I'm not the least bit impressed by that, never have been. But today... Today's the day you became my pastor. He said, I've been closing my heart off from you for three years until today, because today is the day that you told me that you and I are the same. You know, Augie Pullman at the end of the book and at the end of the movie Wonder, put this in your pocket and carry it with you everywhere you go. Be kind. Because every person you meet is fighting a hard, hidden battle. That's the gospel. Jesus has no taste. And so he is kind to every hard, hidden battle. That includes the hard, hidden battles that lead us into the darkness of addiction. It includes the hard, hidden battles that lead us in the darkness of self-righteousness. He has no taste. And isn't that great news? 
The last thing the world needs is Christians who act like they have their acts together. How many of you have, have this story? I fell in love with Jesus because a Christian or a group of Christians scolded me for my ethics, scolded me for my moral choices. Who has that story? Okay, so I'm 51 years old. I've been a Christian since I was 21. So that's 30 years. I've been an ordained minister since 1996, so that's 23 years. I've been working in ministry since 1991, which is 28 years. I've never met a person who has that story. I've never met a person who knows a person who has that story. I've met thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have said, I fell in love with Jesus because the church loved me. Because Christian friends surprised me with a love I didn't expect. When this prostitute barges into the Pharisee's house, not only does she express her affection in the way that she does to Jesus, not only does she sit silently as she is once again scolded by the church guys, a great surprise happens to her that possibly had never happened before. Somebody defends her against the bullies. And Jesus stands up and says, you see this woman? This woman. She's a she, not an it. She's a person, not a thing. Do you see this woman that you call a sinner? Do you see her? She's just put on a clinic for you of what love looks like, of what the impact of starting to understand that you are forgiven looks like. Learn from her or perish. Flannery O'Connor, the great Southern short story writer and novelist, says, with Jesus, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. To the degree that we can receive that and then begin to embody that is the degree to which we begin like the prostitute, Paul the Apostle, King David. That's the day when we begin to do our part in shaking the earth. Let's pray. Lord, you welcome sinners and you eat with us. We have no other hope than that. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Naked we come to you for dress, and helpless we look to you for grace. Foul to the fountain of your mercies we fly. Wash us, Savior, or we die. Amen.